today we're going to speak about the Puranas, uh, chapter 10 in Introducing Hinduism. Uh, I should have written the word Purana. In Sanskrit, uh, there, there's the word Pura, Pura which means uh, before, previously, and Purana means ancient or past story. So, um, anyway, I'm going to begin by making some comments about the textbook. <laughs> I thought I'd do something different. At least, at least we're coordinating the, the book. Of it. So, um, so um, on page 188 in the chapter uh, the uh, the book made a statement which which I want to discuss with you. And the statement is, uh, after other literatures such as the epics, Mahabharata and Ramayana and so many other literatures, sectarian scriptures developed in tandem with the Shaiva, Vaishnava, and Shakta sects. We'll talk about that very soon uh, in another class. In sort of what you might call classical Hinduism, with the rise of devotion, bhakti, and the three big winners were... Vishnu, Shiva, and Shakti. Those three deities became the object of the vast majority of them. Hey, how you doing? <coughs> they can't, yes? Brahma didn't become, because he's like one of the three, three Murthys, but... The creator God. Yeah, like Vishnu, Brahma, and Shiva are always that's a good question. Brahma was somehow not perceived as an object of religious devotion. Something like Plato and Demiurgo, sort of like he builds the universe, but uh, I think there's always a sense with Brahma that he's working for someone. He's sort of like, like a vice president. And then the question is, who's really God? And so the three deities, actually the two main deities were Vishnu and Shiva, and of course Shakti, the goddess is also very important. Uh, but there's not a there's not a major Purana devoted to Shakti. There are many major Puranas devoted to Shiva and Vishnu. And, uh, anyway, so uh, that's an interesting topic you've raised. So sectarian scriptures developed in tandem with the Shaiva, Vaishnava, and Shakta sects. That means uh, sects devoted to Shiva, Vishnu, and, and Shakti. Puranas are classified along sectarian lines. Other Puranas do not, some of them, other Puranas do not lend themselves to such sectarian, such sectarian classifications. I noted this because the author three times uses the word sectarian. And uh, this is the common word. This is the standard academic word. Almost any academic book you read about Hinduism, when they talk about uh, traditions which devote themselves to a figure as God or as a deity, a theistic, theistic tradition, as opposed to, let's say, Vedanta, uh, impersonal Vedanta, focusing on an impersonal truth, or Buddhism, or even ritual activities where the gods really aren't that important, but the mechanism of the ritual is important. So when you have traditions where you really have this old-fashioned religious sense that this is God and you're worshiping God, uh, scholars, in, in their very flattering way, call this sectarian. And um, I thought I'd read you some definitions of the word sectarian. 
because th this is the word that's always used. It's always used. And uh, so I want to make a comment on academic culture and some of the old anti, if not anti, very briefly, there was a time which we talked about earlier in the course when most of the scholars were Christian. And they had an obvious and at times a gross bias against other religions. So that Hinduism was first studied by, uh, well, you could say, at least to some extent, in many cases, religious fanatics. And so they had a bias against uh, Hinduism. Then, in academia, within the, the Western University, the Christians passed the baton to the secular humanists and then the agnostics. And so then uh, they became very influenced by Marxism and other types of materialistic philosophies. And so then they continued to bash religions. Uh, of course, they were more fair in the sense they bashed all religions. But also Hinduism because it was a religion. And so uh, the whole, in fact, up until about 15 years ago or so, and even in some universities to this day, they use a system called methodological atheism, which means that when you're studying religion, whatever your personal beliefs may be, you should assume that all of the religious claims are false. So that, uh, in other words, methodological atheism, for the purpose of your methodology, studying religion in a scholarly way, assume that there's no God, there's no soul, that's all false, and focus on material factors like why did a particular religion spread or not spread, or for example, the question you raised, like why was... Why didn't Brahma make the cut? Why didn't he become a major league deity in classical Hinduism? It must be for economic reasons, sociological reasons, political reasons, anything but the religious reason. Because the religious reasons are all mythology. Now, as crass as this may sound, uh, this really was, and to some extent still is, the way. It's changing. Now, I, I have this uh, debate with a uh, gentleman. Good morning. I had a debate with a gentleman who at that time was a chairman of the religion department at Southern Methodist University. And he was arguing, and this was just several years ago, he was arguing adamantly that methodological atheism was the only way to go. It's the only way you could do real scholarship. That's changed a lot. But there's still residue, there's still remnants of this approach, this um, materialistic approach to the study of religion, which has changed a lot, it's not exact, but, but it still remains. One of the ways I think it remains is in the use of the word sectarian, which is always used. This is a standard word. So I want to read you some definitions of the word sectarian, which is always used to describe any religious tradition which uh, believes in a particular form of God with a particular name and so on, like Vishnu, Shiva, or Shakti in this case. So, well, first a quote from a friend of mine, Francis Clooney, who... Uh, it's actually a Jesuit, and he teaches at Harvard now. He, is, he has the main Hinduism chair at Harvard. Contemporary scholars are frequently skeptical and even dismissive, dismissive of theological interpretations uh, with which Vedantins invested the Upanishads and, of course, other literature. Now, in other words, sectarian. Cambridge Advanced Learner's Dictionary says that the term is mainly disapproving. It's mainly disapproving. It's a negative term, sectarian. A person strongly supporting a particular religious group, especially, especially, in such a way as not to be willing to accept other beliefs. And here's the example, a sectarian murder. That, that's the example they give of how the words can be used. 
Or he called on terrorists on both sides of the sectarian divide to end the cycle of violence. So this is the Cambridge Dictionary. These are examples of how the word sectarian is used. Um, and the word sect. Now, what scholars will argue is that, no, we're using it in a different way. Uh, and, and they make this sort of this sociological distinction that a religion is, is a, or a church is a religious tradition which sort of is dominant, and that's like the religious culture of a particular civilization, a particular society. And then if something breaks off, but sort of develops to a certain extent, it's called a sect. And then there, you know, there's schisms and sects, and there's all these sociological definitions. However, my point is that scholars don't operate in a vacuum. They are in the same, on the same planet we are. And therefore the point is, when you use a word which has extremely negative connotations, in the Cambridge Dictionary, the examples they give are a sectarian murder, sectarian terrorists, and I have more. I have more juicy stuff here. And this is the word they're using. And this is the best word they can come up with to describe any theistic tradition. And as long as you don't believe in a personal God, and as long as you don't get too specific about the personal God, you're not sectarian. But as soon as you choose as your belief or as your whatever, your path, something involving a personal God, you become grouped you get this word, which is also used more commonly for terrorists and murderers and things like that. Anyway, so here's Merriam-Webster. Sectarian means first sociological, characteristic or relating to, characteristic of or relating to a sect. And then limited in character, scope, limited, parochial. In other words, when you commit yourself, let's say, to Shiva or to Shakti or to Vishnu, you just narrowed your perspective. Your claim, let's say, in a Vedantic sense, that, well, God is the source of everything. Remember the first Vedanta, well, the second Vedanta statement, Janmadya Sajataha, the absolute is the source of everything. Or Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, I'm the source of everything. Yeah, but that's sort of mythology. Or a, but, but really, whenever you commit yourself to a specific conception of God, you are, you are limiting yourself and narrowing yourself. That's the idea. Which, of course, is begging the question, because... If your religious claim is true, then you're expanding your horizons. If your religious claim is untrue or only partially true, then you've actually limited yourself. But to say whether a religious claim is true, untrue, or partially true is to yourself make a religious claim, right? It's just like if you mark, let's say you're giving a spelling bee, and which I'm sure you, many of you do in your spare time, you host spelling bees, and then someone spells a word and you say that's the wrong spelling, you're claiming to know the right spelling. So if you claim that a religious claim is true, untrue, or partially true, you are claiming to have privileged religious knowledge. Otherwise, how could you mark it right or wrong? So therefore, uh, bless you. Or, if there's no God, um, good fortune. So, so the idea here is that um, to use a word like sectarian, which for most people, most of the time, has a negative connotation, and to say that's the only word we can use, I think is, it's actually a remnant of a sort of an older and nasty, nastier period of religious studies. So uh, here's an unabridged online dictionary. Sectarian, first, pertaining to sectaries or sects, then narrowly confined, narrowly confined, or devoted to a particular sect, 
narrowly confined or limited in interest, purpose, scope, etc. Bigoted. A bigoted or narrow-minded adherent of a sect. These are some of the flattering meanings of this word. And this is the word that's always used virtually 100% of the time to describe any tradition within Hinduism which involves some specific notion of a personal God. The American Heritage Dictionary. Uh, we don't have to outsource these definitions. We have So, uh, adhering or confined to the dogmatic limits of a sect. Partisan, narrow-minded, parochial. Oxford Compact Dictionary. Uh, concerning or derived in from a sect, carried out on the grounds of membership of a sect or other group. The example, sectarian killings. That's the example. So now that you've seen what the word sectarian, and I've given, you know, these are one, two, three, four, five standard dictionaries. It has, it's a very negative, pejorative word for most people most of the time, and that's the word which is used three times, the little quote I gave you from page 188. Sectarian scriptures, sec developed along, Puranas are classified along sectarian lines, and so on. So I don't think words completely divest themselves, just become stripped of all their primary meanings just because a scholar claims, well, I mean it differently, even though in the real world it's a very negative, insulting word. And so, anyway, I thought I'd throw that in. It's just uh, no extra cost to you. So, the Puranas. What are the Puranas? Uh, they're these great storybooks. The Puranas existed before there was television, movies. People didn't have, you know, DVDs or couldn't go to movies. And so the Puranas were the blockbusters. These were the summer blockbusters. They have all these stories of kings and gods and goddesses, fantastic tales. And they really, uh, I mean, just like I, I talked about this earlier in, early in the course, just as uh, Star Wars uh, just at the box office was a billion-dollar franchise, I mean, for the whole trilogy. I'm sorry, uh, Lord of the Rings, I meant to say. Star Wars, I'm sure, also include all secondary products. But just at the box office, at the box office, uh, Lord of the Rings was a billion-dollar franchise. And so a lot of people went to see it. So just as in our culture, what are the biggest movies? What are the biggest movies? You know, these big blockbusters. And so in the same way, the Puranas are the ancient Hindu blockbusters. The Puranas became most important, along with the Itihasa, the epics, because they had the great stories. And it had exactly the same cultural impact on ancient India as you know these super movies have on us today, for the same reasons. Sex, violence, you know, romance, and, and, all, and space travel, all these fantastic things. These were the great stories. So... Um, any questions on that? Yes? How do you say that the Mahabharata and the Ramayana were those box office hits? Well, also the Puranas. For example, the Bhagavad Purana, the story of Krishna, extremely important. And, and the Puranas have all kinds of stories. In terms of, let's say, single sustained narratives, yeah, Mahabharata and Ramayana, you have all kinds of stories in uh, Puranas, which were the basic education, cultural... That's how people became socialized and acculturated. It's extremely important. People knew these stories. That's how people learned all kinds of things about life, about marriage, you know, and, and love, and about war, and about all kinds of things. So the Puranas are very much recited and um, 
It's a very powerful influence. And of course, you could say as a single work, the Mahabharata is called the epic and the Ramayana, of course. You could say perhaps the most important, but the Puranas were, were extremely influential. And also have their own versions of these stories. The Puranas talk about the Mahabharata story. They talk about the Ramayana also. So it's kind of, you know, one... Now, some distinctions made in, in, in the book, uh, chapter 10. Uh, while the epics seem concerned primarily with Dharma, the Puranas are essentially expositions on bhakti. Furthermore, particular stories contained within any given Purana may have circulated independently for centuries earlier than the compiled texts themselves. We went over this a lot, about how there's a long oral tradition and so on. And so, uh, Professor Rodriguez makes a distinction. The epics, the histories are about, mostly about Dharma. Although in the, in the Mahabharata, you find um, the Bhagavad Gita, which is probably the most important single work on bhakti, on devotion, and the most important single work on anything in Hinduism. In the Ramayana, uh, well, the Ramayana itself became the main source of devotion to Ram. And so Ram Bhakti, as they call it in India, Ram Bhakti, devotion to Ram, is extremely important. It's, it's one of the main religious things going on in India for, for many, many centuries. And that's based on the Ramayana. And other Ramayans, like the uh, later Hindi Ramayans, Tulsi Das, and there's a South Indian Ramayana. But so, so although it said here that the main thing is Dharma, but the, but the epics, the histories themselves, became uh, very much a... Uh, how should I put it, inspiration, an inspiration to devotion. So it's not like that real simple distinction. And the Puranas teach a lot about Dharma. So it's, it's a basic, it's, it's a very rough generalization. Puranas attempt to convey, this is page 189, a view of reality that supports Vedic orthodoxy while including the host of non-Vedic deities. Oops, I don't have time it is right. Okay, now I have time it is. Uh, first encountered in the epics as well as emerging gods and goddesses, demigods, legendary heroes that derive from folk and regional traditions. So there's not a jealous god here. This is a very inclusive tradition. We've talked about this a lot. It's very inclusive. So the Puranas... Th there's a verse in Bhagavad Gita, which uh, it's not up here, but we went over before, where Krishna says, Jo, Jo, Jang, Jang, Tanum, Bhakta, and so on. That whatever form of deity you choose to worship, that god or Krishna in your heart, kind of gives you strong faith in that deity and even gives you uh, rewards from that worship. Like you have certain wishes. You worship desiring to achieve something and actually get it. Lovate chatata kamat. The person actually gets their wishes fulfilled. So according to this worldview, which we find in the Bhagavad Gita, the very fact that you recognize there is divine power in the universe, that that divine power somehow is personal, and then in your own way, whatever name you use, whatever particular form of deity you recognize, you're trying to connect with it, uh, you get credit, you get points for that. And so the Puranas, if somewhere in India, someone was worshipping a particular deity and getting benefits and, and being inspired, they would say, okay, somehow divine power is coming through that channel. And so maybe technically, theologically, it's not perfect, but divine power is coming through. So they would recognize it, they would include it. The Romans, by the way, had this attitude. The Roman emperor would pay to have worship done in Jerusalem at the temple and other places in the empire on behalf of the emperor. Because they felt that divine power comes through these different channels. This is an Indo-European idea. The fanatical idea, there's one true religion and everything else is a false religion, one living God and a bunch of dead gods, 
everyone that chooses a living God will be blessed forever. If you make, you know, one theological slip, God's going to fill you full of lead and then ignite the lead. <laughs> it's a, frankly, it's an extremely uh, violent and, uh, I think, fanatical way to look at it. And if you think, what kind of, what would God be like if that were true? I mean, what kind of God would, would, be, would we be stuck with if, if, if you just, like, make one slight theological mistake or become inspired by the wrong avatar or prophet or whatever, you're tortured forever. Even if you were sincerely trying to worship God, intention means nothing, and uh, morality means nothing, and devotion means nothing. You have to be technically correct on a particular revelation or be tortured forever. It's, uh, anyway, it's a remarkable way to look at things. So, here in the Puranas, they're very inclusive, they, and which, which reflects the nature of European civilization uh, before it was uh, basically transformed into, transformed by Middle Eastern ideas about religion. But before that, under the Romans, it was actually, uh, it was actually quite liberal in many ways. Oh, no problem. So, few other statements in the book. Uh, one thing we, we talked about earlier is that, uh, page 190, Vishnu was a minor Vedic deity. Uh, I argued against that. I won't go over the whole thing again, to your relief. But basically I explained that um, Vishnu is talked about in very special ways in the Rig Veda as, as having a transcendental position. And that the 10th book of the Rig Veda, the Purusha soup to him, the, the, the Purusha, the supreme person who is the universe, who creates the universe, as was identified with Vishnu from very, very early on. The oldest commentary we have, going back thousands of years, on the oldest Vedic literature, Rig Veda, the Aitareya Brahmana, begins by saying of all, of all the gods, Vishnu is the highest. The Yajur Veda, which explains the sacrifice, the most ancient explanation of the Vedic sacrifice, says that the sacrifice is Vishnu. So whenever you do sacrifice, you are actually communing with Vishnu. And so... To say that Vishnu is a minor deity because there are less hymns to him in the Rig Veda, I think, is a kind of uh, bean counting. And it's, uh, there's a lot of evidence that that's not true. Also, that Shiva's not mentioned in the Vedas. Uh, there are hymns to Rudra. Rudra, who the followers of Shiva accepted to be Shiva. This goes back very, very far that Rudra and Shiva are the same person. And again, our textbook sort of ignores that and just declares that she was not mentioned. But really, scholarly consensus is that it's, it's an open issue because, because a later tradition does identify Rudra with Shiva. Uh, one other point in, on page 213, 214. There's in the, in the Brihara Upanishad, the oldest Upanishad, there's a sage, Yajna Valkya, who uh, is kind of like a, uh, I don't know, Wild West sage in the sense that he makes all these heavy statements about how, you know, he's, he's like a real beef eater or something. At least in, in some in some of the ancient texts, he's quoted as being kind of like, you know, like a Wyoming sage or something. But, um, mm -hmm. no offense to anyone that may be from Wyoming. It's just that they are extremely enthusiastic about the cattle industry there. So, anyway, the Brihadaranya Upanishad, Yajna Valkya, uh, is asked by Shakalya, how many gods are there? So, he says, 303. 3,003, 33, 6, 3, 1, half. Well, then finally, his final answer is 1. And that, at that point, the bell rings. 
one, and that one is Brahman. Now, Professor Rodriguez makes a very interesting statement about this. About this. To say that there are many gods, there's you know, this number, that number, depend, what do you mean by God? And, uh, and finally, there's only one that's Brahman. And so the professor says, not all Hindus share the opinion of Yajnavalkya. In practical terms, for most Hindus, their perception of the various deities they worship is that the deities are different divine beings, each with distinctive names, abodes, characteristics, and spheres of influence. That's certainly true. For all the talk about the one, uh, people really are attached to their deities. They actually are devoted to their deities. And uh, they, have a, they feel they have a personal relationship with their deities. And it's, it's, not, it's not just this uh, lofty philosophical idea that deities are just illusion, as Shankara said, and ultimately it's just all one. That's not, it's not really what people are experiencing and feeling and believing in practical Hinduism. But then uh, the book goes on to say other things. It is thus facile, which means easy if you know your Spanish, facile. It is thus facile oversimplification to subsume all the diversity of Hindu polytheism under the monistic rubric of Brahman or some monotheistic configuration. It's, it's, a, like, it's like a cheap oversimplification to say that really it's just all one and all these diversity of gods and goddesses are just an illusion. It's really all one. That's not what's going on on the ground, you know, in the trenches of Hinduism. That's not what's going on. But what uh, Professor Rodriguez does here, and this I want to talk about, and then uh, just for a minute and get to another topic, is that um, he includes monism and monotheism as both sort of like easy oversimplifications. And uh, there is a tremendous amount of, well, like, I had the experience a couple of years ago of lecturing at uh, the main Hindu temple in um, Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, on, the, on a poster on the back of the wall, on the back wall, I'm thinking too much English, on the back wall, they had a poster which was who's who in Hinduism because it's so complex. There's so many things going on. That, and, and when you have the Hindu diaspora, when you get the Hindus in, say, in America, Back in India, they'd all have their own temples. Like someone goes to a Shiva temple, a Vishnu temple, or a Shakti temple, or they have their little local deities or whatever. But when they come to America, there's not that many Indians. So in order to, especially in a smaller market like Knoxville, Tennessee, in order to get the money to build a temple, they often work together. So when they build the temple, there are always these issues. I know because I, I've worked with uh, Hindu communities at, at dozens and dozens of these temples. That um, it becomes an issue that who do we put on the altar? Because you have all these Hindus in America who have to band together and work together, especially in smaller towns, not perhaps not Chicago or New York, but certainly in a, in a smaller city, to get the money to build a temple, but they all come from different lines, of, you know, different types of Hinduism. So who do we put on the altar? And uh, so because of this situation, and they usually compromise, and they, you know, they, have something, they have lots of altars and something for everyone. I know in, in Birmingham, Alabama, where I... I it's often invited to speak there. Still, it's think of the, the main Hindu temple in Birmingham, and um, they have lots of altars, so that everyone's got their altar. So wherever you come from in India, and whatever your particular deity is, you've got it there. So, uh, but on the back wall of this temple in Knoxville, going back to Knoxville, uh, who, that's why they needed a poster. Who's who in Hinduism? Because the Hindus, you know, they don't. 
Another thing you read about often in Hindu textbooks is that they care more about orthodoxy rather than, I mean, I'm sorry, orthopraxis. In other words, if you go to the Hindu temple and there's like a standard puja and everyone recognizes it, you offer certain articles like a burning lamp or incense, there are flower garlands, and everyone understands it. It's sort of like universal. Everyone understands what the puja is and that here's where you make a donation and you take a remnant with the prasadam, the food is offered to the deity, and then, and then you get a little remnant of that food, and that's a great blessing, or water sprinkled on you, the water that was offered to the deity. And so these things are really understood, and no matter what temple you go to, everyone understands these things. And if you go there, and, and, as everyone does, and everyone knows what appropriate behavior is, and how to act, and how you know what the time is to pray, and so on, and so everyone participates. That's the orthopraxis. That's the correct behavior. But in terms of the philosophy behind it, that's not something that people are as interested in, for the most part, not people in general. And so, um, so they had a poster to try to explain to the congregation who's who, because we have so many altars, so who's who in Hinduism. And this poster, probably not printed by that particular mandir, probably was just a, something done by some Hindu society that was distributed to many similar temples. So basically what they said was that Shiva, Vishnu, and all these other gods are sort of manifestations of God, but ultimately they're manifestations of one God, who they called Paulishwara. Remember from the Yoga Sutras? For those of you who are present and actually fully conscious, in our last class, Ishwara means the Lord, so they're trying to drill here and drill into the classroom. So, anyway, so there's an Ishwara that has no particular name and no particular form. It's just the Lord. And then all the specific deities are manifestations of this Ishwara. I believe that's what Hilary Rodriguez is talking about when he says that uh, it is thus facile oversimplification to subsume all the diversity of Hindu polytheism under the monistic rubric, Brahman, it's just all one, Brahman, or some monist, monotheistic configuration. So I think that's what he's talking about. This, we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more later in the course, but when we talk about what, what's called Neo-Hinduism, Hinduism, let's say, in the 19th and 20th centuries, where they formulated a specific philosophy to try to unify Hinduism by, by saying that there is ultimately one... Well, anyway, they tried to do exactly what Hillary said was a simplification, oversimplification. But um, as far as monotheism, the Bhagavad Gita is very monotheistic. And so I, I think Hillary himself has sort of indulged in a somewhat facile oversimplification because there are very powerful wings in Hinduism, very important, powerful traditions within Hinduism that in fact are monotheistic. In fact, we'll talk about that uh, in just the next lecture or two. Uh, especially the Vaishnav side, the Bhagavad Gita is very powerfully monotheistic and uh, specifically claims that God is Krishna. Although there are many forms of God, it's not a jealous God and God can manifest in many other ways as well, but still there is ultimately an original form of God. And so, I don't, should we say that now the Bhagavad Gita is not all of Hinduism, but it's the most important book of Hinduism. So if you're, if you're talking about all of Hinduism, then yes, people have different views about what God is. But if you're speaking about within Hinduism, there are very important, powerful, uh, monotheistic 
traditions, which have many, many followers, which have tremendous cultural and, and religious influence. So it's not merely diversity. That's my point. It's not just a lot of gods, and that's the end of it. There are very powerful monotheistic claims made within Hinduism. In fact, three really. I'd say probably the most powerful one is the Vaishnava one, because the Mahabharata is a Vaishnava work. The Ramayana is a Vaishnava work. The Bhagavad Gita is a Vaishnava work. And then after that, the Shaiva tradition. We'll talk more about that later. The followers of Shiva make their claims in slightly different ways. And the followers of Shakti, there are claims made that Shakti is the highest deity. And so you can't say that all Hindus have the same idea, but most Hindus do believe in, in, something, in something like a monotheistic picture of reality. So it's a little... Anyway, better drop that. So, now, the last thing I want to talk about is that today is a special day. We'll get into some practical Hinduism here. Today is a... Mahotsa Titi, it is a holiday or a special day called Govardhan Puja. I hope that's Prasad in there. No? So, today, to, and, uh, well, first I'll read one quote as my in- introduction here. Hillary does say, the Krishna avatar, the Krishna avatar is immensely popular in Hinduism. And now, then he says, undoubtedly due to the influence of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita is certainly extremely important, but Krishna, what's called Krishna Leela, pastimes of Krishna, are extremely popular in their own right. In fact, there are many people that know Krishna Leela, stories about Krishna, and don't know the Bhagavad Gita that well. There are many people who are not so philosophically inclined that know the stories of Krishna much better than they know the Gita. So Krishna, the life of Krishna really goes on its own steam. I mean, the fact that Krishna speaks the Gita adds tremendously to his, his importance, but still, the stories of Krishna are themselves extremely important. And so to say that it's uh, undoubtedly due to Bhavi's influence is, is not quite accurate. Krishna is not a remote deity, abstract and devoid of character, but an irresistibly attractive human being. The account that follows is culled from Puranic and popular accounts. So the very word Krishna, uh, we're going to talk about this more in the future, but since today is Govardhan Puja, those of you in India must know about that, Govardhan Puja. So uh, the word Krish in Sanskrit means to attract, is not, is an abbreviation of none, to the verb none, which means pleasure, to give or experience pleasure. So... Krishna is like the most beautiful. That, that's always always been understood, this, this most beautiful deity. And uh, his life, very briefly, which, which is talked about in the book. You remember when we talked about Mahabharata, that whole story with the cosmic battle and all that? And so, uh, okay, here's part two. The idea is that Krishna himself came to the world when these uh, powerful demons had invaded the earth. Uh, Krishna himself came. And he was born... It's very interesting, because just as Jesus was born in a manger, uh, that's how the story goes, you know, in Bethlehem, for various reasons. So Krishna uh, was born in, in a prison house, because his parents, Vasudev, his father, Devaki, his mother, had been uh, arrested and imprisoned by this tyrant, Kamsa. Kamsa is uh, one of the great villains of Hinduism. Kamsa was this, uh, actually, he was, he was one of the invaders. Kamsa himself was one of these extraterrestrial bad guys that came to the earth. 
And he knew there had been a prophecy that uh, the eighth son of Devaki, who was his own sister cousin, that her eighth son would kill him. That her eighth son would be an avatar of Krishna and would kill him. And so therefore he arrested her. He arrested his own sister, cousin. Cousin, sister. He arrested her and her husband and, and, uh, and kept them in prison. So Krishna was actually born in a prison. And, and Kangsa, she had seven children before that. The first six, Kangsa killed. It's, it's actually a great story. I'll go a little bit of the story. It's a great story. The, the first six, as soon as they were born, Kangsa actually killed these infants. Because even though the, the prophecy was that the eighth son would kill him, he didn't want to take any chances. Now, the seventh, the seventh child, uh, well, it's a complicated story, but when Kangsa went into the prison house, what he found was this infant girl. And so, he was so cruel that even though the prophecy was a male child, the eighth child, this was a seventh child and a girl, he thought he would kill her anyway. So, it's described in the Bhagavad Prani, he grabbed her legs, just a newborn infant, grabbed her legs in his hands, big, powerful warrior, and he was going to slam her against the stone floor of his prison. But as soon as he grabbed her, she slipped out of his hands and just went up into the sky and manifested herself as the goddess, uh, Durga, with all these weapons. I mean, he, I mean he, she could have just annihilated him in a second. But, <laughs> and... Uh, and then she, she, she said to him, Manda, and said to you fool, that the, uh, the child who will kill you has, has already been born, and it's already elsewhere. The idea is that Krishna actually had been born and, and then taken somewhere else and traded with this girl. So it was kind of the eighth. I mean, I could anyway, technical, but seventh was Balaram. So, so the eighth, so Krishna had been born, his father. I mean, it's very similar to biblical accounts. It's very interesting. Uh, because just as the Red Sea parted, so uh, when Krishna was born, his father, knowing Kamsa would kill him, uh, decided she had to flee. And so it said that magically the shackles on his arms and legs opened, the prison door opened. They took this baby Krishna, and uh, he had to cross the Jamuna River to get away from the prison. And uh, it said that it had rained, there had been torrential rains, the river was swollen, it was like this raging river, but the river sort of parted for him. And, and, and he walked, and there's many Indian Hindu paintings of Vasudev carrying baby Krishna across this river. Anyway, so then he brought this girl child, this, this, this uh, female baby, thinking the Kamsa wouldn't, you know, would see it was just a female and wouldn't harm her. So anyway, so when this goddess rose into the sky and she told Kamsa that you fool, that the child that would kill you was already born somewhere else in this world. And so, uh, anyway, Kamsa then ordered that all the male, that all the recently born male children should be killed. So, so he sent word out and had, had all the uh, male babies that were born like within a certain period killed. I mean, he's really a bad guy. So anyway, then Krishna grew up in Vrindavan and Kangsa uh, suspected that Krishna was there. He, he began to understand that actually that was Krishna in this village. So he sent all these sort of like monsters, all these demons. I mean, you know, it's better than Lord of the Rings. And so, like, there was a whirlwind demon that took Krishna and rose into the sky, just like, like a cyclone, and then Krishna just sort of made himself so heavy that the demon crashed to the earth. There was this Putana, this witch, that um, she had this power of Kamarupa, where she could change her shape at will. So even though she was this, sort of this hideous witch, she uh, changed herself into this most attractive form. And she looked like a goddess. And she smeared uh, poison on her nipple and then went to 
went into Krishna's house when he was a baby and asked Yasoda if she could nurse him. So then uh, she, you know, pushed her breast into Krishna's mouth and then to poison to kill him. She had this lethal poison on her breast. And it said that Krishna, who, you know, he knew what was going on, he, he sucked out the milk and then he sucked out her life. And, uh, and then there's a scene where she's screaming out, let go of me, let go of me, and then she, she falls over and she's dying. And as, she, as she's dying, she loses the strength to maintain this false form. And she is like manifests as this giant, hideous witch. And, great movie. So anyway, <laughs> and then Krishna, being, being sort of a, a nice guy, he thought, well, she did try to kill me, but I did drink the milk from her breast, so I guess I'll count her as a mother. And so he, he gave her liberation because he had taken the milk from her breast. Anyway, so Krishna grew up like this. All kinds of demons came, tried to kill him. He always knocked them off. And meanwhile, he was just playing. And uh, the idea of Krishna playing in Vrindavan is that it's like if you're a famous person, the hardest thing is to find a place where people just accept you for who you are and aren't just trying to be with you because of your fame or your money. Like I'm going to read an article. What's his name? Uh, Harrison Ford. He, he lived somewhere in Jackson, Wyoming, just because there were a lot of rich people there, and so he was no big thing. You just sort of walk down the street, and it's like, hey, hi, Harrison. And no one cared. So... Because when you are famous or have a lot of money, people tend, parasitical people tend to surround you. And so to find people that don't care about your fame, don't care about your money or power, and really just like you, becomes a very difficult thing. And it's interesting that Krishna, according to this Krishna philosophy, actually chose to live in Vrindavan because the people there didn't know he was God and didn't really care if he was God. They just loved him because he was Krishna. They weren't, they, they weren't with him because... They thought, okay, we'll get something and we can pray to him. They just love Krishna. It's like, whoever you are, we just love you. And that's where Krishna chose to live. So he grew up in this little village. And then, uh, so now, what happened today, Giri, Krishna is very famous in India as Giridhari. Isn't it? You all know that. So, uh, the idea is that Indra, remember old Indra from the Rig Veda? He... Uh, well, what happened is that it was time for Indra Puja. It was time for the a regular offering to be made to Indra. And Krishna had come to earth, among other things, to teach monotheism. But you should just, yes? Is it more like an Indra Homa? Like, you know, with the whole Veda chanted and the whole Vedic sacrifice? I, I don't remember exactly which it was, but, but it, was, it was an offering to Indra, who said the god of rain. So Krishna told, he was just a little child. Krishna was just a child, like seven years old. But he told his father, who was the head of the village, you don't need to worship Indra. You can just, uh, he said, there's no need to worship Indra. Why don't you just, you know, cook something for me? And so again, Krishna's father, you know, just thought he's just, he's just my kid. Like, oh, that's very cute. You know, where's my camera? Where's my tape recorder? But he didn't take it seriously. But Krishna somehow or other had this power. And so he actually persuaded everyone in the village to suspend the worship of Indra. So what happened is Indra was very furious at this. And so he decided to teach them a lesson they'd never forget to just devastate the village. He's going to wipe out the village of Vrindavan for that. And so he sent these, uh, the Samvartika cloud, like the cloud which is used when the whole world is destroyed. And this tor these torrential rains, the whole, the whole village is being flooded. Everyone's going to die. So they somehow or other, they all cried out to Krishna. They wasn't sure who he was, but they knew he was like a special guy. So they cried out to Krishna. Then Krishna, who was seven years old, came over to this huge hill called Govardhan, and it said with a little finger of his left hand, he lifted it up. And, he, and it said he lifted up this hill like an umbrella. 
And then all the residents of the village came and took shelter under the hill. There's a very extremely famous story in Hinduism. It's an extremely, I mean, there's just, everywhere you go, you'll see posters of this, Krishna's form of Giritari. So today is the day, it, it's the festival day commemorating the, the day when Krishna lifted up this hill, Govardhan Hill. And so therefore he's called Giritari. Uh, so that's an example of Puranic stories. And, and these are the stories which, which have really captured the heart of, of Hindus for a very, very, very long time. And eventually Indra realized that, he, that you know, some, something went wrong here because Krishna is just holding this hill up. And th- th- I mean, there's all kinds of nice little details in the Bhagavad Purana. Like, for example, Krishna is holding this hill. People are kind of like scratching their heads like, how is he doing that? And so, because they, wasn't sure, they weren't sure who Krishna was. And this is a world in which gods and goddesses come to earth. People have mystic yoga power. So the fact that Krishna is holding this hill up with the little finger of his left hand, they know that he's not just a regular guy. And so some of his friends come to him and say, like, hey, Krishna, if you want to put the hill in your right hand, we can massage your left hand if you want. And, and then at one point, Krishna was kind of looking at some of his girlfriends, and then, you know, the hill started shaking because he was looking at his girlfriends. And uh, people got real excited. So finally what happened is that, um, is that Indra realized, whoops, that maybe Krishna is who they say. So then he came down to earth, and he surrendered to Krishna. And then Krishna blessed him. So, so today is the day that that happened uh, within Hinduism. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's called Govardhana Puja because the hill that Krishna lifted is called uh, Govardhan, which is still there. I mean, I've been there many times. You can still go to India in Vrindavan and, and people circumambulate this hill. Uh, it's a very popular thing that thousands, if not millions of Hindus over time, they, just, they go around this hill. Some people are so devout. I've seen this. They'll, they'll, and, and it's several miles to go around the hill. They'll take a stone and they'll fall flat on the ground, like offering obeisances, and they'll put the stone down, with their, and then they'll, they'll get up and they'll walk to the stone and then fall down again with the stone and then walk to it. And, and they'll go miles and miles around the hill doing this, like trying to give themselves completely to God. And uh, stones from that hill are actually still worshipped. They're considered sacred stones from Govardhan. Go means cow. By the way, it's actually cognate with our word, cow. And Vardhanam means like flourishing or growing, so that which, you know, which, which makes the cows flourish because it was a great pasture. So, so Govardhan, they have what they call Govardhan Shilas, Govardhan Shilas, or sacred stones from Govardhan. So it, it's, it's an extremely important thing in, in Hinduism, this whole story of Krishna, and, and today is the day. So what they do is, all around the Hindu world, the Vaishnava world, People build mountains of prasadam. They, they prepare food, all kinds of delicious food, which is offered to Krishna. They make a mountain of this food, and people go around it, parikram. Uh, they circumambulate the hill, and then after they, you know, have this festival, you get to eat the hill. So, uh, today's day, so we'll stop here. See you on Friday if you're, if you make it that far.